Lil Nas X has pissed off a lot of people over the weekend as he unveiled his new music video. The part that has people most offended is when Lil Nas X slides down a stripper pole from heaven to hell and gives the devil a lap dance. Despite all the hate and judgment, Lil Nas X has had time to clap back at all the hate he was receiving over the weekend. There is a mass shooting every week that our government does nothing to stop. He pointed out to one person, me sliding down a CGI pole is not what's destroying society. The sneaker collaboration with Mischief, which I now realize that's how it's said, contained a Nike Air Max 97 with satanic imagery and a single drop of human blood in the midsole. Many people were upset about the blood and felt that Lil Nas X was trying to possess people, accusing him of worshiping Satan. Well, that's a story, the Lil Nas X story that you probably heard about months ago, and that's probably because I've been holding on to this interview for a while and uh, for various reasons. It's an interview with a Christian pastor named Dr. Mike Merrill, who absolutely is convinced that there are no good or bad and there is no evil. And you can imagine how that pushed my buttons as a why evil matters guy. So let me just play a couple clips from the upcoming interview and then we'll get right back to it. Hold your ears. It's painful. As a Christian pastor, is there a moral imperative connected to this issue? Is there right and wrong? Is there good and bad? When I watched that, that is a marketing ploy that worked. It's funny that you say that as a Christian pastor, because that's the same shit that I hear from atheists and occultists. I teach people how to connect with God as far as I understand who God is, my lack of knowledge does not dissuade me from teaching what I do know. And like I say, that's absolutely awesome. My kind of thing is follow the data and relentlessly follow the data. Absolutely. But it's well, then don't experience. go saying 69% reduction on COVID masks. Follow okay, the data. Understand right. what you're talking about. Be rigorous. But hold on. Because I said all this in the email, and you just completely glossed over. You didn't respond to anything. I sent you a survey with 20 questions. Right. You didn't answer but one or two. Everything was an other, right. other, other. You're kind of oppositional. I get that. I can be that yeah. way too. But here's the point. I base my belief on the extended consciousness, on the reality of what you're talking about. Because I but do believe there's real? a reality. Hold right. on, Mike. You always want to grab the wheel, don't you? I love it. Whenever a guy says, I'm in the driver's seat, it's up to you. Those I know it. Those are the people always want to grab the wheel that's the evidence that's what happens it's not what christians say there's not some big bad judge up there who's going to come down on you you judge yourself but the other thing they says there is a right and wrong that's real that's inside you you know what's right and wrong there isn't this relativism there isn't this oh there are no good and bad emotions of course there's good and bad emotions that's the whole idea of choosing right versus wrong we should be on the same page but we're not, and that's the problem. And that's what little Nas X brings into focus. No, that's not good, little Nas X. It's not okay. And to idolize satanic, do what thou wilt, uh, just feed yourself, feed your ego, those are not good emotions. It's just not good for your soul. Welcome to Skeptico, where we explore controversial science and spirituality with leading researchers, thinkers, and their critics. I'm your host, Alex Sikaris, and today we welcome Mike Merrill to Skeptico, which could be, as we were just 
kind of alluding to could be a very, very interesting chat. Mike is a very distinguished trainer, speaker, and author of Why Do People Act That Way and What Can I Do About It? A very kind of interesting book that has a lot of, I think we might lead to some skeptical topics, even though kind of indirectly. And then uh, Mike is also a pastor at Parma Christian Fellowship Church, where he lives in upstate New York. Again, Mike is, you know, this guy kind of multifaceted, very plugged into the corporate world with his training and stuff like that, but balanced with this Christian Fellowship Church pastor that he is. So, of course, with that background, he would be the perfect guy to talk about little Nas X tweaking on Satan, the oh, video yeah. that I sent him. And uh, like I said, this could be kind of an interesting ride. We, we kind of got connected through uh, Mark Palmer from My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. And I'm really uh, grateful for Mike agreeing to join me on a kind of merging my journey in a way with some of the stuff he's been doing. So Mike, welcome to Skeptico. Thanks Thank so much for coming on. Glad to do it. This sounds like a lot of fun. Okay, so start I'm adjusting off. myself a little bit so I can be looking right at you instead of off to the side. There we go. Oh, I'm, I'm going to be looking off to the side all the time, so don't worry about <laughs> it. So, you know, people are going to be curious right from the beginning. Why that very great title, a very great hook. Why do people act that way and what can I do about it? Give us the thumbnail sketch. I started out counseling with a... Uh, psychology orientation, clinical approach, which basically puts people in a box. Once you figure out what their symptoms are, you solve the box, you try and make sure that you know uh, what their what their problem is, and then you solve their problem because they fit in a box. I found when I started working with real people, everyone hates that. They don't want to be stuck in a box. They just want to talk about what's going on in their lives. So I spent about 10 years listening and not giving advice, not directing, not solving people's problems. As I did that, I found that all emotions fell into one of five categories. I developed a counseling orientation that there are only five basic emotions. The Why Do People Act That Way book, in essence, explains the five emotional systems and then how they fit into a person's perspective on reality. But we developed the theory a little bit further than that. Uh, the four colored heads on the front of the book you had up there a moment ago um, are yellow, red, blue, and green. And they represent four different complexes that go into the way a person develops their own personal sense of reality. The yellow head is perceptions. I think there are 10 of them. The red head is emotions. I think there are five systems. The blue head is motivations. I think there are five basic drivers. And the green head is behaviors. And I think there are two essential pathways that regulate all of behavior. But they're not independent, bright yellow, bright red, bright blue, bright green, jump from one to the next. They actually interact with each other. So the Venn diagram looking image there shows how emotion changes behavior. It changes perception. Perception changes motivation, changes emotion. So the answer to the question, 
why do people act that way is in what we call the cinnamon diamond, that little interaction between all four of them with a question mark in it. And the second question is as important as the first, why do people act that way? What do I do about it? So those are the two questions that I heard over and over and over in 40 years of working with people at all ages from young children all the way through uh, elder senior citizens who were in the process of dying at every situation of life. Okay, so uh, sounds good. Sounds very progressive psychology kind of stuff that I'm kind of well versed in. I put yeah. a big maybe by all of that. Now this also, how does this or does this intersect with your life and your work as a pastor? And I understand you're writing a book from a Christian perspective on, on that too. What, what is the intersection between those two? Because I, I didn't exactly see it right off the bat. I didn't write the book from a pastoral point of view or a biblical point of view, but a reality point of view. The concept that we have in essence is what we call reality intelligence. And where emotional intelligence is one quarter of the way we see reality, the other three complexes fill in that piece. It really has to do with how every individual senses what is real to them and how do they find their place in that reality? When the sense of reality or a person's place in it is conflicted or has friction or is broken, an individual will say, life is not working for me. I experience the trauma. I don't have an answer to this important question. My responses are damaging to me and to others. So what we do is examine how does a person see reality and what their place is in that reality. And if they find that destructive or difficult, we work to resolve it. If they don't have a problem with it, I don't have a problem with it. It's not up to me to say you have a problem with your life because I think you're wrong. I, I learned decades ago that does not work with people and it's really ineffective way of, uh, of approaching any kind of situation. So I, I just stopped doing that. Great, great. So maybe that's the, the shoehorn into this video that I've shared with you and I've already queued yeah. up the audience on. Um, this was quite the news, you know, little Nas X twerking on Satan. Uh, sure. you, you watched the video? I did, yeah. And were you familiar with the controversy before? I... Yeah, sure. The okay. drop of blood in the shoes, blah, blah, blah. Okay, let's let's play that for folks who, who don't know anything about it, just so we can tee up the conversation. Because I think sure. it gets into this question of, you know, w what is morality? And is there a moral imperative? Is there good and bad objectively, as opposed to subjectively in some way? So here is... No jumper news. These guys actually do a really good job on this. So uh, hats off to them. Adam Two Two and uh, and AD. I think our Adam Twenty Two and AD are are, are going to tell us what's up here with Little Nas. Hey everybody, welcome back to No Jumper News. It's Adam Twenty Two here with your man AD. Let's get right into these stories. 
So first story, Lil Nas X has pissed off a lot of people over the weekend as he unveiled his new music video and collaboration with MSCHF. When Lil Nas X dropped Montero on Friday, he immediately became a trending topic on social media as various people were upset about his use of satanic imagery. The part that has people most offended is when Lil Nas X slides down a stripper pole from heaven to hell and gives the devil a lap dance. Despite all the hate and judgment, Lil Nas X has had time to clap back at all the hate he was receiving over the weekend there is a mass shooting every week that our government does nothing to stop he pointed out to one person me sliding down a cgi pole is not what's destroying society the sneaker collaboration with mischief which i now realize that's how it said contained a nike air max 97 with satanic imagery and a single drop of human blood in the midsole many people were upset about the blood and felt that Lil nas x was trying to possess people accusing him of worshiping satan former nba player nick young took to twitter saying that he would no longer be allowing his kids to listen to Old Town Road. My kids will never play Old Town Road again. I'm still debating about wearing Nike after this. Come on, Nike. A drop of blood for real? His tweet. Okay, we can stop it there. Sure. Um, like I say, I think it is it is relevant, really, to some of the core issues in your book. Why do people act that way? And what can I do about it? And it is certainly core to uh, my project in terms of why evil matters and kind of getting off of the relativism fence and trying to get to some of the core issues. So, you know, I don't know what your answer is, but as a Christian pastor, is there a moral imperative connected to this issue? Is there right and wrong? Is there good and bad? I, to me, when I watch that, that is a marketing ploy that worked. That's not about good and evil. That's about getting eyes on and ears to listen and pocketbooks to open up to buy music. And the extreme nature, uh, the, the weather guy in my town has breaking news about how hard it's going to rain tomorrow. Stay tuned and watch. Everything is extreme. So what's happened in rap music over the last 25 years is what used to be shocking, unbelievable. How could anybody possibly do something like that? A woman with her shirt unbuttoned to the third button. You have got to why I'm never buying that again. So we just keep upping the intensity of the marketing. He didn't slide down a pole. Satan is not a woman who's wearing a black leather outfit. Uh, he, he's not twerking Satan. It's a CGI image that's designed to get people engaged in conversation. And guess what? It worked. <laughs> it worked. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I just, it's funny that you say that as a Christian pastor, because that's the same shit that I hear from atheists and occultists. And, you know, I just interviewed this guy, Mitch Horowitz. And uh, I love his bio. Mitch Horowitz is a historian of alternative spirituality sure. and one of the most brilliant voices in esoterica, mysticism, and occult. And then you push and you say, are you a Satanist? And it's, yeah. And then it's all this kind of coded speak about, you know, what the real purpose and goal might be of Satanism. You talk to the Aleister Crowleyites, you know, it's the same kind of thing. So uh, back to the question. Is there a moral imperative? Is there right and wrong? 
the, the challenge that we have in asking that question is what is the nature of evil itself? In the questionnaire that you sent to me, uh, I answered that question with, there really is no such thing as cold. There is no such thing as darkness. Darkness does not exist. Cold does not exist. Cold is the, is the word that we use for an absence of heat. Heat is actually something real. There is energy from a source, infrared or some method of electromagnetic energy that actually exists creating what we call warmth. When that's gone, when it doesn't exist, we have a word for that absence. It's called cold. When light is emitted from a light source, Albert Einstein struggled to define what is the nature of light? Does it bend? Does time stay up with light? On and on and on. Very interesting stuff to look at that. But when light is absent or blocked, we have a word for that. It's called darkness. But darkness doesn't exist. It's only the absence of light. So the question is, what actually is evil? Evil from the Greek word paneros, the original word paneros meant grudging. It meant to have no generosity. It meant to be miserly. And so when it was not so much that there was a component called selfishness, it was the absence of being generous. So when you take the goodness of God himself and and block that, eliminate that, take that away, supplant it, you end up with what we call evil. So a moral imperative would imply that the opposite side of it is there's a disincentive or a requirement away from that. But in the nature of God, God is. He doesn't have to explain himself or herself or themselves or whatever it happens to be. So the absence of the goodness would be what we would call evil, yeah, in my I, view. In your view, good. I, I, uh, we'll we'll kind of talk more about that. I'm still having a little bit of uh, trouble. If, as a Christian, do you believe in the historical Jesus? Sure. Okay, so you believe that there was this— a historical Jesus. Don't change the question. Do I believe in a historical Jesus? Do I believe okay. that there was a historical well, then Jesus? You were yes. worried about me changing the question. How, how are you worried? If I what agree you? to your statement, then you change the question. It sounds like I've agreed to the second question. I haven't done that yet. Go oh, ahead. I, what do you <laughs> think I was going to... You're in the driver's gonna, seat, not me. I'm a guest here. What do you think I was going to change the question to that would be problematic? I, I've heard people change the question. So do you believe that he took physical bread and fed 5,000 human beings all at once with five loaves and two fish. Did that historically I wasn't going to go there. I was going to go <laughs> that there was this there was this tribe of people. We call them the Jews now, whatever they were called back then. Tribe of and Judah, the, right. One of the and tribes. And they, they had their thunder god, and they recognized that all the different countries and there weren't countries back then but everyone had their different god and they protected their people and they had their thunder god and then that's who yahweh is and then so you believe that then yahweh has this 
child through a virgin birth and this child is born and it is the son of God and there is this original sin thing going on and this is a sacrifice that's made by God through the death of this child that then that moment in history changes everything. And so the basic tenets of Christianity from a historical perspective, you are you are down with that. Yeah, sure. Okay. So but, you know, I wasn't the, there, so it doesn't matter. You weren't, what do you mean that you weren't there, so it doesn't I, matter? I wasn't there 2,000 years ago. That's all by testimony or by record. The question is, is there a God, or are there multiple gods, or are there forces? One could say it's different for each person. You don't believe in that? There is no God for you. I believe it. There is a God for me. Or we can say there's an actual reality that human beings struggle, first of all, to perceive, and second of all, to describe what they perceive. Is there an absolute reality that we try to ascertain, or is there no absolute reality? Even in that question, the lack of an absolute reality would be an absolute reality, that there is no absolute reality. That would be an absolute reality. So I think there's an absolute reality, and our challenge as human beings is to perceive what is and then to find ways of describing that. Well, that's going to get into a discussion about consciousness, which maybe we'll have because sure. I'm not sure you you where you really stand on that and whether that's directly relevant. But I want to kind of drill into this a little bit further because, you know, my reason for doing this so that people don't think I'm going too far afield here is the way that non-Christians like me relate to Christians like you is often kind of cloaked in a lot of kind of coded speech that like sounds like we're really talking about the same thing when in fact we really aren't talking about the same thing. So sure. if we talk about evil or if we talk about the moral imperative or good or bad and or if we talk about the historical Jesus, I'm going to return to the historical Jesus. So sure. you accept and I accept beyond this kind of reality kind of thing, which gets a lot deeper, it gets into philosophical idealism versus materialism versus panpsychism. And we could have that whole talk about that and about whether the world is out there or that the world is a, a co-creation of me and my mind. But we're going to sure. set that aside because that's a different discussion. And it we're going to pretend that there's a world out there. And then we're, I'm going to asking you as a Christian. We're going to take that as a given. We're not pretending. We're taking it as a given. I don't take it as a given. I'm more. For this discussion. Otherwise, if we don't take it as a given, then <laughs> okay, we have to discussion. go to that point and start talking about that. Well, yeah, and we will in a minute. So uh, you can say we're pretending. <laughs> I'll, I'll go with that. Well, in, in that, then, you know, if we do want to try and understand Yes, I'm, I'm with you. If we're going to play the game, what I call the consensus reality game, and that For is sure. that Mike sees reality a certain way, and it turns out as we write books and talk to each other and share this language, we have a pretty close consensus on what that reality is. And part sure. of that reality is that there is a history and that yesterday did happen yesterday, even if physicists tell us that that's not necessarily true. And there were these people called the Romans and that they had this 
territory in Judea, and then they had this whole thing. So in that sense, I guess I feel I need to still kind of pin you down on, you know, who this Jesus character is, because I think Christians really wind up with kind of a, a hard time if you're really going to own this kind of son of God risen on the third day, and I believe it because these, because this book I have tells me so. Um, I, I just, is, is that where you're coming from? Sure. Do you have a problem with that? I don't think it stands up to scrutiny. You know, I it just- It doesn't stand up to your scrutiny. Own well, that. Mike, you can own that. Mike, well, uh, let me finish the sentence. Go ahead. I'm sorry. So there, there is, th this is again, if we're going to play the consensus reality game, then one of the things we do is we have certain, this is what science is about. This is what academia right. is about, right? So we sure. set up this system. We're all biased. We all come with certain beliefs. And then this is the way we wrestle it out. And we have these accredited institutions. And we have people that write scholarly papers and they're reviewed by other people. And I've talked to a bunch of those people. And that is the basis of my opinion. I just, I just okay. had an interview, a wonderful interview with Dr. Elaine Pagels from Princeton University. They're close to you up there in the Northeast extremely uh, respected, you know, Obama wrapped that essentially the Nobel Prize for the Humanities around her neck in 2016. She's just super respected in the uh, religious studies community. So Elaine Pagels comes along, she goes, hey guys, again, because part of her story is that she's a woman in a male-dominated, Christian-dominated kind of world. And she says, what about this stuff over here? What about this stuff in the Nag Hammadi Desert? What about all these things we dug up? What about the Gospel of Thomas, which she's most well known for and she says objectively there's really no reason to exclude this from the gospels other than the kind of political shenanigans that uh, constantine took she says it's we have a better record of it it probably predates most if not all the gospels why shouldn't we consider that so on a very basic level is christianity open to archaeological advancement sure doesn't look like it is but how would we factor that into your beliefs were you asking all of those questions as rhetorical questions well w which one do you want me to expound you on? Had, you had about eight questions from from the woman from princeton that were all rhetorical questions why don't we accept this do we have an openness is it those are all questions. They're not answers. They're not statements. They're questions. What's the problem, Mike? The, the point is, you got the Nag Hammadi Library and you got the Gospel of Thomas. Sure. Are, are you down with that? Is that, are you? Yeah, sure. Those are documents. They're perspectives. What, what's, the, what's the issue? The issue is that calls into question the I think the, the, the history of the book that you're talking about. I don't think the book stands up. Why? And, and, well, why do you? One is that? the reason I. One is the reason I just said, and the, and what the reason that the I gospel just, of Thomas exists, and that calls into question Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, I I think, you know, if just to kind of make the connection there, why is the gospel of Thomas left out? It's the gospel of Thomas left out of the canon or left out of historical study. Well, left out of the canon by a 
serial killer kind of sociopath called Constantine who constructed the New Testament. I mean, this is not this stuff, this kind of basic, this is the kind of stuff, right? This is the kind of stuff that doesn't make its way into the conversation between Christians and non-Christians because we either get the, the roadblock kind of thing that you're doing or don't go there or I don't have to defend my beliefs or my beliefs should be kind of, my beliefs are my beliefs and they're beyond question. I, I don't, uh, th that's maybe overstating where you're coming from, but I, I don't feel- It a, might a, be. Okay. So, <laughs> yeah. In a certain sense, what you're accusing me of, you're doing also. You have a set of beliefs. You have you weren't there in the 325 when the canon was set. You don't know what what Constantine actually did. You have some records. You have some written material, and you, you take that as having um, an absolute value. Where Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or the historical canonized record, is not treated with the same uh, credibility as the Gospel of Thomas. If I want to take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and build my belief system on that, that how about that? That's what Christianity does. And if you want to oppose that, I, I'm good with that. And yeah. is that going to undermine what I regard? Let, let's go to the resurrection, because really, ultimately, everything else falls into place under the resurrection. The resurrection well, of why, Jesus I don't, is... I don't think so, but I don't think so at all, but because why is the resurrection uh, the christians have decided that that's some special event and they've first we would have to establish the authenticity of all this stuff leading up to the resurrection you can't just pin everything on on one kind of event in your whole thing because none of it holds together not the whole cosmology of it doesn't make any sense to 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 most people that say you know i don't have any experience with a thunder god who sacrifices his son you know all that stuff just the whole adam and eve story and original sin and that we're all sinners most people are just like this is completely uh, kind of ridiculous once I get past the fact that this was programmed into me as a young child. Sure, I'm good with that. So if they don't want to believe it, I have no problem with that at all. Don't you want to get to something closer to the truth, though? Don't you want to kind of know as much as you can what's real and what isn't? Sure, and I do that every single day of my life. I've done it all of my, I'm 67 years old, and I have done that every single day of my life. Have you ever been with someone when they died? uh the very right. last breath as their spirit left their body and they grew cold no i've been with about 70 people the first one was my mother she was jewish we were not religious we were secular we were wealthy we were my grandfather was very invested in the creation of the state of israel it was a zionist the salvation of the nation was having one's own country, not in Madagascar or not somewhere in Russia or off on the side, but back in the Holy Land, to repossess the Holy Land. That was his view. My mother had no religious training. Uh, she did not raise me. My father is a Gentile. My mother is a Jew. And, and she got cancer. And from my age 11 to age 15, I watched this vibrant, intelligent, educated, very socially astute young woman who had five children of which I was the second become a skeleton. Parts of her were carved off 
thrown in the trash, cancer throughout her body. We're Ashkenazi Jews with the BRCA2 failure. And, and I sat in the hospital room. My father was an alcoholic. He was off drinking. He worked on the space program. He's a smart guy, but he drank all the time. And my older brother had run away <clears throat> because he didn't want to deal with the stress. So he was gone. And that left me as the functionally oldest one in my family. As, as I was sitting in that room, no premeditated anticipation, no Sunday school, no Adam and Eve stories, no nothing, nothing. I had the sense that somebody got up and walked out of the room. It is not repeatable. It's not scientific. But no matter what you say, I know I was in that room and something happened. Something left the room. Who, 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 so, you, who left the room? My, I was there with my mother as she was dying. And her soul left the room? Is that I have no, I don't know what happened. Let me finish the story. So I went out and got a nurse and I said, something just happened. She came running in for code blue, blah, blah. My mother's on a, all the machines that kept her heart going. Her, you know, she had cancer riddled throughout her body. She was about 75 or 80 pounds. I had washed her body. I had taken care of her wounds. I had cleaned up all the vomit every time she threw up her toast and tea for months. My father couldn't deal with it. I dealt with it all the time. I was incredibly close to my mother. So the nurse came in, checked all the machines. I said, I've already looked at the machines and it's all the same. She said, what happened? I said, somebody got up and walked out of the room. That was my mother's body and me. That's it. There was only two people in the room. She said, your mother probably just died. I said, what does that mean? She said, it was probably her soul leaving her body. I said, I don't know what you're talking about. She said, well, everybody has a soul. It's what keeps you alive. And when the soul leaves the body, some people can perceive that and some people can't. So in the, set, in the 50 years I've been a pastor, I have found that to be true. A woman member of my church had four children, one of whom was terrified, absolutely shaking in her shoes, terrified she was going to be in the room when her mother died. We had vigil for that family for about three days in hospice. At one point late in the afternoon, this particular daughter said, I've got to go get a cup of coffee. Can we just take a moment to leave? I said, I'll sit with your mom. You and your sisters can go get a cup of coffee. She walked out of the room. I could hear her steps in the hallway and her mother died. How did her mother do that? She had been in a coma for days. How did her soul know how to leave her body the moment the daughter was terrified? Another man, his name was Rennie. He had 11 of his okay, own children. Okay, but hold children. on, Mike. Hold on, Mike, because we're kind of yes. getting... So what see, I'm saying but, is... No, I, I agree with you on all this stuff. Yes. See, so see and, and I said this. I, okay, but hold on. Because I said all this in the email, and you just completely glossed over. You didn't respond to anything. I sent you a survey with 20 questions. Right. You didn't answer but one or two. Everything was an other, right. other, other. You're kind of oppositional. I get that. I can be that yeah. way too. But here's the point. I base my belief on the extended consciousness, on the reality of what you're talking about, because I but do believe there's real? a reality. Hold right. on, Mike. You always want to grab the wheel, don't you? I love it. Whenever a guy says, I'm in the driver's seat, it's up to you. Those I know it. Those are the people 
people always want to grab the wheel. Here's the point. Yep. I went searching. I was a business guy. I was raised Greek Orthodox. I was raised Christian. I thought it was kind of bullshit because all the guys, all the men I knew thought it was bullshit. You just something you do, you get together, you talk about business, you talk about this and that. And then, you know, you go listen to all that stuff in Greek, which I didn't understand because I didn't speak Greek. So it was about business. It was about money. When I got done with business, I said, I want to understand who am I? Why am I here? Is this real? Is science who consists on telling me I'm a biological robot in a meaningless universe, and when it's over, it's over, there's nothing. Is that true? Right. I've found out that that is not true. The best evidence we have for that is that consciousness is real. Consciousness extends beyond bodily death. The best science we have for that is probably near-death experience science, because these right. people are clinically dead. It also incorporates in a bunch of the stuff. Uh, you know, um, terminal lucidity, which is the, the I'm sure you've seen if you've been with that many people in hospice who are sick and dying, they'll be in a coma, they'll have extreme Alzheimer's before they die inexplicably completely right. outside of our neurological model they'll sit up in bed, they'll say goodbye to everyone, they'll tell them have where they buried. Yeah, have yeah. a cup of coffee saying don't forget, you know, I've all my it. instructions are over here and do it. Okay. All this is highly evidential of the fact that conscious that there is this extended consciousness Correct. realm and that we connect with it. It's also, I don't know why you slide off of this, it's also, also com completely confirming of the idea that there is a moral imperative consistently. And I just talked to Dr. Jeffrey Long, who has compiled the largest database of near-death experiences, and he doesn't screw with the numbers, and he doesn't try and play around. He just reports it as it does. God is consistently coming back. This idea that you are not judged, as Christians think, you are not judged. Your soul judges yourself. That's the evidence. That's what happens. It's not what Christians say. There's not some big bad judge up there who's going to come down on you. You judge yourself. But the other thing they says, there is a right and wrong. The thing that you felt from the time you were five years old and you thought about stealing a piece of candy from the store, that's real. That's inside you. You know what's right and wrong. There isn't this relativism. There isn't this, oh, there are no good and bad emotions. Of course there's good and bad emotions. That's the whole idea of choosing right versus wrong. So we don't want to digress into this relativism. We want to move Christians towards the real spirituality that you're alluding to, not this schoolyard book that has the answers to all the questions. We should be on the same page, but we're not. And that's the problem. And that's what little Nas X brings into focus. No, that's not good, little Nas X. It's not okay. And to idolize satanic, do what thou wilt, uh, just feed yourself, feed your ego. It doesn't matter. Those are not good emotions, good ideas, good I things, good things to move for. And it's not because some bad God's going to strike you down. It's just not good for your soul. Well, if you judge yourself, what's the standard that determines whether that actually is good or is not good? The standard is X, it is good. He says yeah, but he's wrong. How can yeah. he be wrong? He's judging himself. You don't judge him. He judges uh, himself. <clears throat> so the the for us as a culture, right? Because that's what if we're there really... isn't a big bad God out there who's going to judge. Then how can you climb into that seat and judge him from outside of himself? You can't do that. Well, here here's the point: is that of course we can't do 
anything because the other thing that comes back from this extended consciousness realm, and we can get to this extended consciousness realm through multiple ways and through multiple cultures, right? Which is the other big problem with Christianity. It's so centric on our culture that it's just absurd to think that it just doesn't make any sense. So, you know, if you go and look at people who've like one of my favorite go-to guys is a guy from Oxford, Dr. Uh, Gregory Shushan, who took the near-death experience research. And again, he's not Christian. He's not even sure he's into extended consciousness. He just follows the data, near-death experience, cross-culture, cross-time. So now he's looking at p- people in Polynesia, accounts from 600 years ago before there were ever any Westerners or white people. He's looking at people in the Plains Indians. He's looking at all over the world throughout time, and he's finding that their afterlife beliefs are based on near-death experience encounters. There's a reality to traveling beyond this life, and there's information there that can come back and inform the spiritual life of not just the individual who had it, but it so resonates with everyone in the community. They go, wow, I guess that is the right way to be. I guess in the answer to the question, who are we, why are we here? That sounds like a better answer than the book. Okay. That's good for you. So, yeah, but here's where it leads. And here's the problem, because what we're trying to do is understand how this fits into culture. And we want to know, is it okay to judge Nas X? Or do we have to do like Mike is saying and just say, hey, man, you know, there is no, what, what all the, the, the woke people say, which is like, hey, there's, it's all relative and this and that. So I always think about this interview I had with uh, FBI agent Bob Hammer, former FBI agent Bob Hammer. And uh, he went undercover to infiltrate NAMBLA. You ever remember NAMBLA? The, no. They were kind of the kind of biggest hit was in their uh, appearance on South Park. The North American Man Boy Love Association. This is a real group. And they actually right. back in the 90s where they had a little bit of political power. And it was a political front organization. But it sucked in, you know, some kind of just naive social scientists, liberal psychologists into this. Hey, maybe it's okay for 50-year-old men to you know, rape and torture little boys and girls. I mean, if it's kind of consensual, maybe that's okay. So anyways, Bob Hammer, the FBI said, we got to infiltrate this group. So he infiltrates this group. He finds that there's absolutely no political sensibility or political motivation behind it. It's a a front organization for men who are doing exactly that, planning and carrying out attacks on little boys. And, and the one point, uh, the, the story I really like is he says, he was in Times Square undercover and these guys had planned a little field trip to Toys R Us back when it was in Times Square and you could stand up on the second balcony and look down and he realized that all these grandparents and parents who were just having a good time with their kids were eye candy for these people up above who were not just sexually fantasizing, but what he said, fantasizing about how they could hurt and destroy you know the soul of these kids that's really what it's about for a lot of these people but the point of all that was i wanted to go to the extreme so that i could ask him a question about evil is that evil 
And he said what all of us would say, Mike, unless we just want to kind of bullshit around and have some kind of, yeah, that's evil. And those emotions that those people are experiencing at that time, we would best label as evil. Okay. And, and this evil. guy, Bob Hammer said, if I could, if I wasn't undercover, I would have thrown them over the freaking rail and enjoyed watching their heads splatter open on the thing. But I couldn't and I didn't. So is that evil? Throwing them over the, the balcony no, and No, is it, it is it evil for these men to do that? Are those yeah. bad emotions that they're having? Sure, absolutely. Yeah. So with that, then we have established that there is evil. And with that, we have established that there is a moral imperative and there is right and there is wrong. And it's not a relativism thing. But I see that only if there is an, an, a standard that actually exists outside of whether I judge myself. If I judge myself, no one has the right to say that what my judgment is, is absolutely wrong or essentially wrong. Not if I'm the one who judges myself. If I am judged by, don't call it Yahweh, don't call him Jehovah, don't call him God the Father, don't call him Jesus Dad, don't call him Abba. If there is some actual being, sentient being, who holds final authority to judge, then there is a standard which exists for everyone, everywhere, for all time. Or that doesn't exist. If what is evil for one cannot be determined as evil for another, if there is no external standard. I, I think you're, to me, you're, you're kind of overthinking it. I'm going to go to your, uh, to your question, the question I asked you on consciousness. And again, you picked other. I have consciousness. Yes, I'm in here. I wondered whether other was actually a legitimate option. I picked it just to annoy you. Well, you, you didn't annoy me. You just further, <laughs> further confirmed what I thought I was kind of uh, getting into here, which, which is, hey, man, this, as long as you're cool with it, and I think you are, you're not like <laughs> thrown off. I am totally cool with it. I, I like getting to the heart of things. And sometimes sure. that's hard to do. But in terms of consciousness, I had such great answers. Yes, I'm in here. It's the only thing we know for sure, which really scientifically, really philosophically, but also scientifically is the correct, is the correct answer. The only thing we can know for sure is that we are conscious. I don't know if you're conscious. I don't know if you're AI or whatever. The only thing we can know is I'm conscious. So you missed that one. And then you didn't fall for the false so is answer. The top, it, wait, wait. Read the sentence of top, the top one. Yes. Read that sentence. The, your answer or what? Yours. Yes. What's the right answer? Yes, I'm in here. It's the only thing Where is we know in? for sure. What does in mean in that, in that statement? That's what confused me. I'm in here. I'm in what a can in, the, in my body, in the world. In, that doesn't mean anything to me. My mind is an epiphenomenon of brain activity. I parsed that word out and I thought that sounds like something you made up, a phenomenon, but it's an epi, it's an epitome phenomenon of brain activity. Consciousness this is, is, this is the con This is the predominant model of consciousness within science is that 
you are your brain, you are an epiphenomenon of your brain. I didn't invent that. Okay. This is consciousness is an illusion. This is Daniel Dennett. Consciousness is probably nothing. Neil deGrasse Tyson. It's sure. a social construct. Sam Harris. This is our culture. So what little Nas X is about, and the reason that video is, is that this is what culture is telling your kids, your kids are grown now, your awesome grandchildren, I'm envious of you holding those grandkids. I want that, I have four kids of my own. I'm doing everything I can, they don't listen. I, I have 13 of them. Dang you, dang you. <laughs> but the point is that from this, so seat, of, from this seat of consciousness, go ahead, I've stole the mic. Consciousness is a construct to be conscious aware, sentient, understanding, perceptive, to me is a, is a blend of our perceptions, of which there are 10 that I see, emotions, how I respond to that, motivations, how I am constructed to prepare to behave, and how I act. And that's interactive. To me, that's what being conscious is. I thought you were actually asking a legitimate question or which of these do you agree with? Don't give me other as an option. I was gonna put my answer, which is as legitimate to me as uh, quoting Albert Camus. But, but you, can't, you can't say legitimate to me and still be having kind of a discussion inside of, there is a field called consciousness studies and they hold conferences and they have ideas and like i said i'm not inventing the term consciousness is an epiphenomenon of the brain I'm, philosophically i'm not inventing the idea of idealism which suggests that consciousness before matter consciousness is fundamental so you know niels bohr and or is battling einstein and niels bohr is saying hey it's consciousness is fundamental it seems to be that when we do these experience experiments what our participation in them is absolute whether we choose to be a participant or not we are because we're part of consciousness and i says ah that's bunk that's bunk until the end of his life and he comes back and goes ah the date is what the date is i can't uh, disagree these are the fundamental questions about consciousness not on my part this is what the field says right and so the, the, field, the point the, the point doesn't agree the point the field would not accept your definition every person constructs a sense of reality through their perceptions what they would do they, they neil degrasse tyson would love that daniel dennett would love that they would say consciousness is, that you presented as what i could agree with consciousness is an illusion yeah but they're wrong they're nothing. silly they're completely ridiculous take they them off that list you don't want no, that because be it's the predominant view of science. It's what they teach your grandkids at school. They teach you that you are nothing, that the world is meaningless. Whoever you as is, a spiritual yeah. person who understands that there is an extended realm, who sat with those people who are dying, knows that that's bullshit. Right. And it needs to be called as bullshit. And it's not even accidental bullshit. It's not like they don't know any better. They knew they do know better, but this is a better way to run the business. This is a better way to control people and have people do what you want is to tell them they're nothing and that life is meaningless and there is no moral imperative. There is no right or wrong. And, you know, maybe now I should do that. Maybe he shouldn't. We shouldn't judge that. Everyone has sure. their own thing. Okay. Man, you're easy. So it sounds to me like what you're saying is there is a standard of accepted thought and i really should not think for myself 
I should agree with what others have already conceived. But the first person who wrote some of those statements thought for himself. But now at this moment, that would be incorrect, invalid, because there's already a body of information and view viewpoint that exists prior to me. I got to poke at you, buddy, one more time. So I was listening through some interviews that you've done. And you did this interview. Why are people so mad about wearing masks or not wearing masks, right? Remember that? During the interview, you were talking about your frustration with people who resisted wearing a mask. And you said, we're past facts. Those were your, that's an exact quote. And then you went on to state that masks reduce the spread of COVID by 69%. I don't know where you came up with that. And I thought to myself, number one, this guy really doesn't understand science. And number two, he, he has kind of mixed up the science that he has gotten his hands on. And the reason I say you don't understand science is science would never say we're past facts. Science is a method. It's not a position statement. You got that one wrong on the survey as well. Right. <laughs> but we're always moving towards give me that more was the test I was being graded on. That's interesting. Well, that's that's why I, I sprung it, it on you. That's survey. why I sprung the test aspect on you now. But Got science it. is always trying to get more facts so it can know more. And right. now what's what's even more clear, and I did a show on the mask thing, and I kind of debated this guy. He's a PhD in biology from Carnegie Mellon. And it was just kind of miserable to think that a guy with a PhD cannot understand. It's just, you know, it goes back to the it goes back to your book in kind of a strange way. Why do people act that way and what can I do about it? Because here's, but here's the point really, is that we aren't past the facts. We always need more facts. We always need to check ourselves. So the facts about mask wear, wearing, the facts that, that people like yourself kind of weren't able to quite grok, is that there's a difference between laboratory testing where masks were shown to be efficacious, and then clinical trials, where for the last 15, 20 years, because they've been running those tests as long as they can, because they, they were worried about viruses for a long time, not just now. Consistently, over and over again, there's a null result. Mas masks aren't effective in controlling any of these viruses. And certainly in August 2020, there wasn't any good or really any but any good clinical trials to suggest that wearing a mask was effective in not spreading coronavirus now that the data is in it's even more overwhelming we can look at charts of counties that had masks versus didn't and there's no difference state that had masks versus didn't no difference again the masks might work in the lab they just don't work in clinical trials and then finally the coup de gras was fauci was they dug into his hidden emails where he says yeah i know masks don't work they might work for somebody who's in a hospital and is dying so that has it really bad so they don't spread it to other people but they don't work in the general population but the point that for me was you were so confident. You were so confident that we're past the facts. Why are all these ridiculous people out there all frustrated about wearing masks? And you turn that into something of like, there have these kind of emotional disturbances that we need to kind of understand. And that's 
the risk I think we get when we apply a social science psychological explanation without endlessly digging for the facts. And we have to balance both, but sometimes we don't we don't balance. What do you think about the mask thing? Have you changed your opinion? Some people are going to wear masks. Some people refuse to wear masks. Some people will wear them when they're absolutely required by some business or social setting to wear a mask. To me, pick what you want to do. What do you want to do? What do you want to do? Wear a mask or not wear a mask? Mike, I feel like we're back to the back to the Jesus question. What I want is to understand the data and whether or not masks are efficacious. But eventually you have to get to a behavior that you either engage wearing a mask or you disengage not wearing a mask. You can't do both at the same time. You can only do one. You either wear a mask or you don't wear a mask. Yeah, right? but why, are, why is the data not important to you in making that decision? It is, it's important to me. So, but the question, you're raising a question of your question applying to me or to others. What I'm saying is determine the data, wear a mask or don't wear a mask. But that isn't, even the, that. That isn't even the question. You don't have to be good with it. It's not a question. The, the question is the link between science and public health policy. Okay. That's what we really care about. Whether so or what not do you do the, about it? Well, we do what, what we're doing right. What we do about it is right now we expose yeah. we we try and have a, a an intelligent discussion that gives people a different perspective because what was promoted was this idea that that you echoed that masks are super effective if you don't wear a mask you, you you're not like you said we're past the facts masks work they're 69 percent effective that turned out not to be true when the data was actually did come in and real scientists reviewed it that turned out to be kind of a fake news to use the, the modern thing. So it, it raises the question of how is public policy interfacing with science and to what extent is the message being distorted? And then that relates back to Nas X too, which is the, the reason I bring it up is sure. all this stuff fits together. Okay. So how does science fit with public policy? Are you a public public policy writer? Do you write public policy? I'm a public policy consumer, if you know what I mean. Sure. Right. There are laws in California that tell me when I go to my daughter's high school graduation tomorrow, what I have to do in terms of right. certain health protocols that have zero connection with real science. And we may find that in a month or six months or six years or 60 years that some of the data was skewed based on limited ability to know at the moment in real time that the that the information was not necessarily complete and yet either to engage a behavior or to disengage that behavior you can't do both you can do only one or the other so in real time at that moment was it better to say wash your hands stay six feet apart wear a mask Wearing a mask is 
uh, a random behavior, whether it's entirely effective, 69% to me is not absolutely effective. It's 69% effective. But it, so, they're not 69% effective. They're not. But they're right? not 0% effective. Are they 0% yeah, effective? That's the, the, that's the science. The science is that there's 0%. They were 0% effective. Clinical trial after clinical trial that was done in the real world, and a lot of times these are done in hospitals, and they have one ward wear the masks and one ward not wear the masks. Right, so surgeons and, and nurses who are doing surgery wear masks, and it's 0% effective. Well, you'd have to go in, and I can send you the, you can go watch the, the interview that I did with the guy from Carnegie Mellon, the biologist, but you can go look at that science and you can review it and it's published. And you know, as far as you said, 0% effective, again, that's not exactly how science that's works. That's not exactly true, right? No, that's not what I said. That's not how science works. Science recognizes that those kind of studies are a numbers game. So there's a certain hurdle with somebody has to jump over to become a statistically significant result that would cause action. and. Right we never achieve that and because the other side of that is if we did achieve that and we said wow these masks really are effective then we'd want to do a whole bunch of other studies to find out if there are actually problems with wearing masks whether they actually have health problems associated with them but we never got to that point because they were never shown to be efficacious it was kind of a closed issue and no one knew exactly why because the masks work in the laboratory and we think it's because you know when you're handling the mask or when you're using the mask or different masks and stuff like that but that's that's the data and that's how science is supposed to operate so again you have to ask why are we why are we out of sync in the same way that we're out of sync with consciousness Consciousness is not an illusion. There is this extended realm. There is a God. There is a moral imperative. Why do we say the opposite of that? So let me go back to the story of my mother, which we jumped off of. When my mother died, something happened. The struggle that I had was finding words to describe what I perceived in a split second. I'm talking a portion of one second. Something happened spiritually, consciously, uh, epistemologically, biologically. I have no idea. I do not know to this day, having 56 years to reflect on what happened and observing death after death and birth after birth after birth, by the way. I was there for the four of my children. We aborted one child that had died in my wife's womb. Uh, I was with two other women who had no one to go in with them for the birth of their babies that were not my wife, that, that I walked through that experience. There were, there were numerous situations of the inception of life and the demise of life. In all of those contexts, watching people come into a room and all of a sudden the person died as soon as they walked in the room. Somebody left the room that was terrified and the person died at the moment a, a, a family member needed to call in. The phone was put by her dad's ear. She said, dad, I love you. And he died. I don't know how those things happen. It's not scientific because 30 times people died completely irrelevant to who was in the room, what was going, they just died in the middle of the night, blah, 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 blah. The reality is the challenge that we have is 
is how do we understand the experiences of our lives that are not scientifically repeatable? I can't go into a laboratory, gather some family members, and then murder someone to see, did anyone perceive the soul leaving the body? We can't do that. It's all by anecdote. So the question then comes back. It's, but from my perspective, it's by anecdote. I can study all of the research. I can read all the books. But in my life, it's by anecdote. Who, what I actually experience. So I bring that back to the scriptural record of Jesus dying on the cross. Why do you do that? Let me finish my sentence. If the issue is ridicule, I can take that. But if it's an honest inquiry, then let me explore. But you're you're demissive, dismissive. You are. I'm good with that. I've been dismissed before. If Jesus died and rose again from the dead to to human life, either that happened or it didn't happen. Okay, so connect that with your anecdote, anecdotal. So if it happened, encounters? if my mother died, I've had people say nothing happened. You just made that up. You were waiting for your mom to die, and that was your emotional way of just experiencing uh, letting go of your mother. That was purely psychological on your part. And I say you weren't there. You don't know what was my ex my perception that I cannot explain. I've had all kinds of ways in which I've resolved conflict and let go of things that pets and stolen bicycles and parents and grandparents. I've, I've done all that. But what happened the moment my mother died, I can't explain, but it is as real as anything in my entire life has been. And someday I am going to die. Something will happen to me. And I'm either comfortable with that or I'm traumatized by my own mortality. I have counseled and talked with an amazing number of people for whom their own mortality is traumatic. They can't talk about it. They can't think about it. They can't express it. They can't grasp it. They cannot imagine what it means for them to be dead out of this body. It's, tra it's traumatic. And my response to that is, there is a reality, just as you said, there is a God. It's not the option that for you there's a God, but for someone else there's not. There actually is an independent reality. What do we call that God? How does the Native American and the person in, in Chile and somebody in China, how do they call that? How do they discover that? That's going to be entirely different and that's part of the discovery conversation. I'm good for that. I call that Jesus. But what's the actual reality? I'm in a discovery process. All my life, I'm in a discovery process. However, for me, the event of my mother dying, and she didn't come back. It wasn't a near-death experience. It was an actual death experience. She was gone. And... And so when Jesus died, 
re I mean, uh, whoever the historical Jesus was, either he stayed dead or he came back to life. Not just a swooning and a recovery, he actually died. Now, the people who have had near-death experiences, you have to save their grave clothes because they're going to die again. None of the people who went through near-death experiences continue to stay alive yeah, after you, that you, experience. You, you don't, I don't think you're, you're kind of get on the beam and then you kind of venture off into away from the science. First of all, you're selling short these anecdotal accounts because what science really is about, that's the first step of science is to collect, observe what's going on in this world that we pretend is like we said, we were pretending is out there. So anecdotes is the beginning of data and of discovery. That's right. And if you look at like I was referring to Dr. Jeffrey Long, and the reason I, I love, love, love his work is again, if you believe that the science he's applied in collecting these accounts, and you believe that he hasn't rigged the data or scrubbed the data or anything else, which is what I asked him the last time I talked to him. I said, Dr. Lung, the one thing we have to be sure is you're not, you're not filtering this in a certain way in order to come up with a certain view. It's absolutely not. You can go, they're all up there. You can go look at them throughout time. So one of the things you can do, and this wouldn't satisfy you because you're pretty locked into the Christian thing, but you could go kind of question whether or not the, the primacy of Christianity thing holds up. And what you'll find is a very mixed review. Some people, about half people, say, I'm perfectly fine with my religion, my belief system that I had. There's plenty of people that encounter Jesus. I always say Christ consciousness because I don't know what, how else to call that. But, but there's a bunch of people who don't. And there's a bunch of people who come back and even people who have multiple NDEs who say, you know, that was what I initially thought, but then I saw something more. And that this idea of religion is really not necessary. And they say that consistently, it's not necessary. That we can disintermediate between the books and all the ideas, and we can have a direct contact with, if you want Christ consciousness or if you want God, although I wouldn't, I wouldn't apply the same definition to God that you would, because I'm not sure if God is independent right. and out there, or if we, God is some kind of collection, collected entity of all our consciousness. I don't think it matters, and I think most importantly, you know, for this ridiculous conversation that doesn't really matter anything to anyone because none of us know, and that's the point. We don't know. Consistently okay. what people do when they come back from this is they say what you're saying, which I think is genuine and true, and I totally agree with. I, I, I don't know, and the one thing I do know is I'm not in a position to know. <laughs> I, I believe that when people come back and say, I knew everything and now I don't because in that state in that extended realm in that realm of the God realm there is all knowing there is all loving that's the most important thing they come back and say it's all loving but when I come back into this body I fight with my wife and the ears have more divorce you know they have because they they're, or they're evangelical and then they go through that it's still a life back here but apparently it's not a life over there so 
the, the, the big the big divide I that, that I have is in and I guess what I advocate for is one spiritual disintermediation and two unindoctrination. You know, it's kind of sad to think that people uh, like me, but so many people are subjected to basically a mind control experiment that is Christianity that forces a certain kind of belief system. It's very interesting that you didn't come through, come to it that way. But obviously, most Christians do. It's like I just interviewed a guy not too long ago, Scientology, you know, and I kind of think wacky cult, right? And I interviewed a, a, a professor from Ohio State University and the religious professors, you know, on Scientology, they're like, hey, man, that's a new religious movement. We don't make any differentiation because, again, because they're all atheists. They're just fronting as, right. you know, kind of scholarly kind of thing. But what this guy pointed out is he was born into Scientology. What chance did that kid have? Right. His parents were Scientologists. He was raised Scientology. It took him, I don't know, as I remember, 20 or 30 years. He was writing the propaganda for, for Scientology. He said, tell the professor I was writing the propaganda to bullshit guys like him. But it took him that long to unindoctrinate himself. That's what most Christians go through. Unindoctrinate this idea that I have sin, that I am going to be judged, that I need to fear death. No one needs to fear death. That's a Christian thing that's kind of built into people. That hasn't been my experience. Well, you don't do it. That's great. No, people, people who have no Christian background, they're not people of faith, they're atheists. I, it cannot be generalized to say that all of them are terrified of death. Of course. Or none of them are terrified of death. But the fear of death is not exclusively a Christian imposition. No, it's not exclusively. But again, here's where the data, here's where the data comes in. Go talk to Jeff Long. In his survey, he asks people, was fear of death a significant kind of fear? I was very fearful of death, blah, blah, blah. He can give you the exact thing. 70% of respondents said that they were on the top two scale, either very uh, afraid or very afraid, right? Right. After near-death experience, the number goes to 13%. This is off the chart. If you go to a social scientist, if you go to some of your woke friends in social psychology and all that stuff, there is nothing that we have in terms of uh, counseling, in terms of any kind of life-changing experience that would cause that kind of shift in a basic fundamental fear like that but okay. and, and i think that speaks to the i think that speaks to not there's nothing special about near-death experience what it speaks to is that there is this extended realm there is this all loving kind of connection that we have and if i was going to agree on anything you said i would agree that it's about the light and the darkness is so overplayed. And Nas X and his satanic Nikes are just people who get sucked into that need to just forget it. It's all about the light. That game looks attractive, but it's not attractive. I understand but that. But the, the, the Lil Nas X video is about marketing. You don't know that. Oh, sure it is. My you goodness. don't. He made the comment he produced 60 pairs of blood Nikes, $1,000 a pair, and they sold out in one minute after everyone reacted to his video. And the reality is, let's just say he had 
he had done a video about light and goodness and being fresh and 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 having a community hug no one would buy what he's doing no one would be talking about it no one would be centering all of their comments in this incredible rage about what little nas x did but now they are They're have you ever looked into have you ever looked into satanic ritual abuse and the reality yes. of that or whether or not that's all satanic but that's panic? not what nas that's not what little nas x was doing he was Say, playing a game that knew that people would talk about what he's doing my point is and i think you would freely admit you don't know that you're assuming that and that's the okay. that's fine you you can take that position but i you know, when I interviewed uh, this guy, Mitch Horowitz, one of the points that I really liked is I came down to the end because he, he's very, very skillful. He's very well-spoken, well you know, and he's a fantastic writer. And he kind of has the, the cool, you know, painted nails and all the, you know, yeah. kind of stuff and the satanic stuff all over the place. But it's like, hey, man, and it's just all fire around his face like yeah. he's in hell and he's the devil and so Yeah, sure. And they That's ask him, marketing. What? No, you are wrong, my friend. Who are your sources of inspiration? He references Michael Aquino. Right. Michael Aquino is one of the most horrific pedophiles kind of we have on record. We have, sure. you know, when Michael Aquino walked through the mall, little girls who got abused at his house in his satanic altar in his house came running over to their parents saying, you know, daddy, daddy, that's the man. And yet this is his source of inspiration to to dismiss all of this stuff as, oh, it's just theater. It's just art. Don't worry about it. Why would we assume that? I take the opposite approach. Anyone who says that they're into Satanism, that do what thou wilt is perfectly fine. And there really isn't any morality to any of this stuff. So don't worry about it. I take them at their word. I don't understand why you wouldn't. I think in terms of real Satanism and what Anton LaVey and some of the others that are true Satanists do is different what Lil Nas X is. He, he needs people to buy his $1,000 shoes, to stay on his, to go to his, his, uh, his, his record label and download music and listen to his music. It's about the commerce of it. It's not about the Satanic worship of it it's about people buying his records and his shoes and it worked he sold out all of his shoes in one minute yeah i mean we're, we're kind of on a dead end there we just have no way no way of knowing it, at least you're you're down with the the reality there you know the whole satanic panic thing is another complete head fake yes satanic panic is sure, real yes is people wrong the word but, for makeup is but no no but the point is there is real sat ritual satanic yes. abuse i've had yes. people on the show victims i've had uh, uh and, and they're I brought not that. trying to sell a book or get you to buy Fuck a yes they are are you kidding all the time all over the place and johnny depp and west memphis three and uh you know all, all that and stuff but that's part of that okay i've been in haiti and the voodoo priests who are true satanic worshipers. I've been in Central Africa and deal with children and animals and, and, and entire people groups who have been taken and slaughtered in ritual abuse. They're not trying to sell a book. They are, they're not trying to get you to look into their music or style. 
They are true satanic worshipers. That's the danger. That's where the evil is. But what, as soon as I say, let me come up with a cool piece of jewelry or on my shoes, I'm going to put a pentagram upside down. That is, you're all going to be scared uh, into, into recognizing the spiritual power that I have plays games with actual evil. I don't think it's actual evil. I think it's, yeah. I think he's playing Cosmeticos. Yeah, I, I think that's very. Uh, I I don't know how but you there's can. There's real evil in the world. Yeah, there 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 is real evil. What, and what I, Adolf Hitler did to that. my relatives was not to sell books. It was to manage well, a generation of the mind to create destruction. What it was Idi to Amin sell books. Did in Uganda. No, it, huh? it was to sell books. I mean, what Adolf Hitler did was to sell books. Was to advance himself in the material world, right? He wasn't, uh, you know, as despite all the occult stuff that we hang on it, 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 it. And there were some members of that group that obviously were like our United States intelligence organization saying, hey, any help we can get from the extended realm, bring it on. We don't care. And, you know, and there's plenty of records for that in the MK Ultra program. But it looks like Hitler, he just wanted to own the world, right? He just wanted to dominate. But not from a marketing point of view. Yeah, I think that's a meaningless distinction. Just like to draw a line and say that little Nas X in his dabbling with the occult or his merchandising the occult, it's like, it's like I said to Mitch Horowitz when we were out. I'm like, okay, Mitch, you want to play this little game with, you know, Satanism isn't what you think. It's about outsider culture. It's about, you know, being all you can be and better than the creator gods and all the rest of that stuff. Hey, man, you want to spin that stuff? That's great. But if you understand that we are co-creators of this reality, which is what you're really all about. I'm just trying to fine point this, Mike, is that we are co-creators. We are either with the light. We are either, you've lived, it sounds like you've lived such an awesome spiritual life and you've connected with and brought love and, you know, understanding to so many people. I freaking commend that. I can see that, right? But there yeah. is an intellectual point that needs to be understood here. So my point to Mitch Horowitz was, if you believe we're co-creators of this reality, Hey, even if historical Satan doesn't really exist and we can't find it if we go and those things, it certainly exists now. There's certainly a whole bunch of energy that's being pumped into that image, into that idea, into that video. And my point to him is, you know, if it's just about energy, why wouldn't you want to pump it into the Jesus energy? Jesus seems like a better, even though I'm not, why not? Conv even I'm not convinced that there's a historical Jesus. I just sure. look at a big picture and say, this guy says, love everyone, tell the truth about community, about love and light. Why wouldn't yep. I choose that? Why would I choose this other Why one? Why not? Why not? I do. I would. I choose the light every freaking time. But why, why doesn't he? because he believes the kind of social relativism nonsense that sometimes gets pitched and I think could be misconstrued from what you're saying is that there's, hey, there's no, hey, he's just doing it for commercial reasons. He's like, no, it's not a good idea. It's not a, it's not a good idea. I don't know why it's not a good idea, but it's interesting that even Adam 22 and AD, who these guys who are tattooed from knuckle to, to face, even they, and they're certainly not Christians, even they are pulling up and going, 
man, I don't, I just don't know about this, you know, and I don't want my kids watching this and this just doesn't feel right. Of course, it's common sense. It's not right. Common sense. Oh, oh, okay. That's so you think it's right. Idea. You think it's right. You think it's no. right. You don't it's think not, it's right. You don't it's think it's right, anymore. Mike. You've, you've, you've painted yourself into this wokeness corner where you can't come out of it and say that is energy that is associated with darkness and evil and i don't want to be a part of it i want to be a part so, of the and light I'm not and i make that decision i am so the question is what do you do about it you can talk about it you can get all riled up about it what do you do about it what i do is i lead a community of people that walks them out of darkness into light i actually do that every single week week after week and i've done it for 41 years in the same town but in addition to functioning in the little tiny burg of Hilton, I travel all over the world and train people and teach people and engage them to move from darkness, which doesn't exist, into light, which does exist, to move from cold, a cold heart, a cold mind, cold relationships, which is the absence of warmth and love and embracing and generosity. I teach people how to connect with God as far as I understand who God is with, with my lack of knowledge does not dissuade me from teaching what I do know. And like I say, that's absolutely awesome. My kind of thing is follow the data and relentlessly follow the data. Absolutely. And mine is follow the experience and find an experience that is beyond the data. Be careful. People die. People die of cancer. There's data to back that up. I watched my mother die. That's experience. And I can't fit it into a data plan that proves a point. What yes, I'm saying you can. is. Yes, you can. You can no, prove it to the point. Can. Somebody else can. <laughs> yeah. But it's well, then don't experience. go saying sixty-nine percent reduction on COVID masks. Follow okay, the data. Understand right. what you're talking about. Be rigorous. You know, it's like when I talk to this guy, this this scientist, and I, I, I really, I, I really, um, I really like him. His name is Hoffman. He's at University of California, Irvine, out here. Donald Hoffman, and uh, he, he, terrific guy, consciousness researcher. And uh, so he says this little anecdote, and I'll repeat it to you, even though my audience has heard it fifty times. He does this presentation on kind of like something you would resonate with that the reality isn't really out there and that consciousness we are co-creators of consciousness and all that stuff so i tell him about um he says we talk about spirituality it turns out he's a very spiritual guy although he's not a christian and he kind of had a uncomfortable relationship with christian christianity because his father was very strict christian so we're talking about i think um oh uh meditation anyways he says one day he was giving a presentation and this guy comes up at the end and says this is a roomy quote you know the sufi guy whatever and he says the word of god is silence everything else is a poor translation and hoffman says you know i thought about it for many he says okay he says actually i would agree with that if we were all to be in silence and to be connected with the source, however we find that. I'm comfortable with that. But invariably what we want to do is talk, and particularly religious people 
want to talk and talk and talk and talk about Jesus and the resurrection and the book and all the rest of this stuff. And his point is, if we're going to talk, then I choose to be as precise as possible in how I talk. Now, to him, that means mathematics. To me, that means rigorously following the data and not falling into the potholes that I see all over the place. That's good. I agree with that. I think we agree on most things. You just, I think so. We both just like to drive. <laughs> I can sit in the passenger seat. You can. In the garbage trucks in my town, there actually are two steering wheels. <laughs> right on, bro. That I, I love those trucks. <laughs> that is very well said. I, I think, you know, my bottom line is that the... The proof is in the life that you lead. I, I just applaud what you're doing and what you're bringing to so many people. I think you are a source of light and, and goodness, and I think that's what you're about. I think these conversations are, they're important. They're important to me. That's why I could continue to have them. They're not just to harangue people. It's to find the, the dividing line that, that often separates us. Tell us more about what people can do if they visit your website, why do people act that way.com and what they can find, how they connect with you. I have a colleague named Mike Wilson who lives in Wenatchee, Washington. We call, we're both named Mike. I spell Mike with a Y. He spells Mike with an I. We do a podcast called Gripping Reality. And, and we train, we do consultation, we do large scale, we do small scale, it doesn't really matter. Our, as opposed to being philosophical or theoretical, Mike and I are experiential and practical. We're pragmatic. People in their businesses, in their churches, in their um, family life, in their in their neighborhoods in in racial discussion and challenge in financial failure every circumstance of life people that we encounter experience tremendous stress they are overwhelmed with pain they are terrified they are furious they are enraged and they don't know what to do with that in my language, they don't know how to resolve the very potent aspects of life as a, that's not true of everyone, but it is true for some. I've talked with businesses, we do a lot of business training for small business owners who are ready to throw in the towel because they hate customers. They love what they do. They hate the people that they serve, but they don't know what to do about it. They find themselves becoming nasty old men and women who just despise their customer base or their families or their employees or their vendors. They come to us and they say, I don't know what to do with this. So what Mike and I do is we journey alongside. I own, a, I'm in my shop of sign making. I have 3,500 customers. I've traveled all over Western New York area, letting people spill their guts out about what they want for their business and how much they hate doing what they do. And I walk them through 
how they can resolve these incredible conflicts or stress points and come out the other side, not avoiding, not repressing, but resolving these, these frictions, these destructive nuclear explosions that are going on in their lives. I don't deal with theory. I don't deal with analysis. I deal with practice. And so what, and, and so, uh, the, the, the philosophy of what I'm doing can be discussed and analyzed. I understand that. I appreciate that. But mine is a praxis. It is to walk alongside hurting people, even to the point where they die and help them die well, as opposed to die traumatically, screaming into the dark night. I've seen that happen. Family members who go traumatized. My father committed suicide. So I have been called into many, many families where their children died, where their parents have died, where they're threatening suicide, where it's, it's not only clinical, it's experiential. And they say, we don't know what to do. Why is this happening to us? And I walk them through it. I give them language so that they can begin to talk about the unmentionables, the unspeakables, even the unthinkables that are going on in their life. And, I, and it may not be the right language, but instead of talking about fear, let's talk about exposure. Exposure is neutral. Fear is terrible. Anger, rage is awful, but empowerment is neutral. So instead of starting out, I've had people say, I was told by my mother, anger is a sin. Don't you ever, ever, ever get angry because, because God is going to judge you for being angry. And I say, nope, anger is neutral. You can be angry at evil or you can be angry at your next door neighbor. It's what it's doing to you. Let's talk about that. And as soon as the burden, maybe because I'm a minister or because I'm religiously trained, they'll say, do you think God thinks my anger is neutral? And I'll say with a straight face, absolutely yes. It's what does it do to you? And what do you do with it? Now, did Jesus ever get angry? He brought a man with a withered hand, the historical Jesus. I'm going to take that out of the context of scripture. He walked into the synagogue with a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath day, Saturday, for the discussion of learned men that refused to allow a person with disability into that sanctuary. It was not supposed to be there. And then Jesus said to them, so guys, do you do good on the Sabbath? Let me heal this man, which was considered sinful, to actually do a work on the Sabbath. He did it right in their face. And, and the, the Greek scripture says, and Jesus looked at them with rage, splagna, a deep moving in his gut about what the Pharisees were doing to this marginalized, sidelined individual and he healed the man in their face and said, okay, what are you going to do about it? That to me, did it happen historically? I don't care whether it happened right, historically. Right. That is a human that is challenge. Genius. That is that, and, spiritual and so genius. Yeah. If someone came up with that out of the blue, 
they're smarter than Jesus is. To have come up with how do you take people of power and bring the most marginalized person into their presence and then claim to heal them. The man who was by the pool of Siloam, Jesus walks up to him and he doesn't say, hey, you know what? I've got a special gift for you today. And uh, you're my lucky recipient of this miracle. He says, do you want to be healed? And the man doesn't give him a straight answer. I've used that countless times. People in counseling, they're, they're fit to be tied. They're overwhelmed with pain. They're, they're at the edge of their minds. And I'll say to them, let me ask you a question that Jesus asked a guy a long, long time ago. Do you want to be healed? Not You're do good. you know how to be healed. You're good. Do you want to be healed? And the man to whom that question was first asked wouldn't give a straight answer. I'm just curious. And I've had people, they'll randomly ro roam all around the territories. You know, you're doing the same thing that the man in that story did. You're not giving me a straight answer. Let's talk about, do you want to be a, if you weren't a victim of your wound, who would you be? They don't know. Who am I? Who, so what I do who am I? Who have I become? So I give people language to find resolution you can call it healing. I've seen people get healed of trauma of growing up with an alcoholic father. I was there. I got beaten. But I don't have PTSD as a result of it because I learned how to resolve what I was going through, not only in real time, but in after effect. And I've learned how to talk about that. So instead of having the philosophy of it, I have the praxis. I have the walk. Let, I don't talk about it. I walk about it. And that's what I do all over the world. So uh, final question, and I was actually not even going to ask, but I was interested in, in what you were bringing up there because maybe it's, maybe it's relevant to our, our conversation in a way that people will understand. Hey, our guest, again, has been uh, Dr. <laughs> Mike Merrill. The book that you're going to want to check out. Um, why do people act that way and what can you do about it? He's got a bunch of other material on his website that I think you'll find really interesting. That's the name of the book. Why do people act that way.com? Mike, I really, really do, uh, respect your, your willingness to come on and, and fully, fully engage. You didn't back down one bit. And I think we had a discussion that maybe will spur some thoughts among some people. So I, I greatly I appreciate so. it. I appreciate you. being here, Alex. It's been very good. Thank you for having me on. All right. <laughs> How long did we talk? Two I don't hours. know. We got going, man. We got going. I think we're both talkers. It was good. Yeah. It was good. Um, I'm just a few weeks behind, but as soon as I get this up, I'll definitely let you know. And again, I just Great. mean everything that I said. I, we're on the same team, so I think it's good for people who are on the same team to kind of look like they're not on the same team, too. That helps. Sure, and I play for the Bills, and we know what that means. Yep. Everyone's, <laughs> everyone's, everyone's against the Bills. Everyone's against the Bills. What I love is the Chargers. Oops, you lost them. <laughs> yeah, you know, I... I uh, I grew up in Chicago, but the one I really, you know, we, my wife and I lived in uh, Dallas, so I'm still, my heart kind of pulls Cowboys for the thing. Cowboys. Yeah, and then yeah. you got, you got the most, you know, the, the guy, the guy there, I mean, just <laughs> Jones, you know, I mean, that's just a hard one. That's a hard one. All right.
my friend. Thank you again. I do appreciate it. So much. Thank you so. See ya. Bye. Thanks again to Dr. Mike Merrill for joining me today on Skeptico. The one question I tee up from this interview, it's always one of my big ones. Is there a moral imperative? Is there good and bad? Do you have good emotions and bad emotions? Or as Mike insists, there are no bad emotions. Ah, boils my blood. Which is a bad emotion. Let me hear from you. Lots more to come. Till next time. Take care. Bye for now. 